All right. Welcome back to The Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today I am joined by Dr. Austin Rupp and a special guest, Dr. Laura Certain. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, we're, we're glad you're here. So Laura is an infectious disease specialist here at the University of Utah. Um, and so for those of our listeners who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So I, um, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So the Midwest is home. Um, and then I, let's see, I did my undergrad at Princeton and then spent a year in um, Cincinnati, Ohio, doing uh, public health research at the Children's Hospital while I applied to medical school. Um, and then from there, spent uh, eight years in Seattle at UW doing their MD-PhD program. Um, and for my PhD, I studied drug resistance in malaria. Um, and then graduated from there in 2009 and went um, to internal medicine, uh, residency, and then infectious disease fellowship at Mass General in Boston. And then stayed in Boston after fellowship doing a postdoc um, in a bioengineering lab where I was actually doing a mouse model of prosthetic joint infections. So doing lots of tiny orthopedic surgeries on mice and oh, wow. infecting them with a bacteria. Um, and then uh, it, you know, it became time where if I wanted to stay on the sort of classic physician scientist path, I would have needed to um, apply for a K award and, you know, real and continue on that route. But I uh, realized that I actually, I really love clinical medicine and I did not want to spend 80 to 90% of my time doing research going forward. So um, I decided to uh, look for more clinically focused jobs and University of Utah had an opening and I kind of applied on a whim and uh, came out here, really loved it. So um, I've been here about three and a half years. Very cool. Uh, impressive, yeah, track to get here. We're, we're glad that you, that you came out West. Um, so uh, how have you liked Utah since you've been here? Um, it's been great. I am a real sucker for natural beauty. So um, the access to the out of doors is a lot of what um, drew me here. Um, though also, uh, my uh, colleagues in the infectious disease division and in the orthopedic surgery department have also been great. And those um, were also big draws as well. Very cool. Uh, any, any hobbies or, or pets you want to tell us about? <laughs> no, uh, we have uh, no pets. Um, <laughs> we are happily child and pet free. Um, but and hobbies, um, I will enjoy exploring the outdoors, hiking, etc. In the winter, I cross country ski. Um, and my latest, uh, diversion has been that we redid our lawn to have all sorts of different plants on it. So now I'm trying to figure out how to keep them all alive. So are you like doing like native plants to Utah that are like more drought tolerant or what kind of plants? Yeah, are we I don't talking? know that they're all native to Utah, but yes, we zero escaped our yard last summer to try to be a more drought tolerant yard. And now yeah. I'm just trying to figure out like, well, do we need to give them any water? 
like once a week, once a month, what does it mean to have low water? And there's no feedback, right? Like you never, like you never know if the decisions that you're making with plants are the right decisions in my experience. Like, (laughs) should I water them? Should I not water them? Are they angry because there's too much water because there's not enough water and you just guess. And then in my experience, they die. So good luck. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we're uh, trying, we're, we're, we're you know giving it a, a good shot but we'll see well the jury is still out on how long this is they're all going to survive well thanks for doing your part i know this this particular year is going to be a rough water year for utah since we got pretty horrible snowpack so <laughs> i've been trying to grow a garden in my backyard to feed my tortoise because i have a pet tortoise and mm-hmm. uh, i can't even grow like dandelions so it hasn't been very successful yet but All right. Well, uh, this week there was an interesting article in the New England Journal of Medicine about antibiotics for prosthetic joint infections. So we thought it would be great to have you on to talk about those since that's kind of your area of specialty. Um, And so maybe you could just walk us through what your basic approach is for treating a prosthetic joint infection. Yeah, of course. And I guess I should have said in my introduction that um, I do focus on orthopedic infections. And that was because as an ID fellow, it felt like they were something we saw all the time. And so we're sort of bread and butter ID. But at the same time, we don't have great answers for how best to take care of them. And it's not like we are great at taking care of them, you know, as we'll talk about a lot of people with prosthetic joint infections end up getting recurrent infections, persistent infections. Um, It's not unheard of to end up with an amputation. Um, And so it felt to me like an area of medicine where we could do a lot better. Um, than we currently are doing. And so that's what um, drew me to uh, orthopedic ID. I also really enjoy the multidisciplinary nature of it. I love working with the surgeons and the other members of the care team. So that's all great. Um, So, but with prosthetic joint infection, so which is um, happens to about one to 2% of prosthetic joints will get infected. So it's uncommon if you're from the perspective of a patient about to get a prosthetic joint, but from a surgeon who puts in a ton of joints, like you will see these um, because it's, you know, one to 2%. Most of the data we have is about hips and knees because that's what most people get. But now there are more, there are more and more shoulder replacements. Some people do elbows or ankles. So it's sort of a growing field. Um, And the basic approach that I take is um, it really depends on what surgery did they have and what bug um, grew, like, what are we trying to treat? And those two things pretty much dictate the management of, um, the PJI. Yeah. It's interesting. You say only one to 2% of people that get a prosthetic end up with an infection, but like, you know, it's for us in the hospital, it's super skewed. All we see are the infections, right? So like, in my mind, it's like every single hip (laughs) replacement ends up infected because I always have at least one of these on my service, I feel like in the hospital. So it seems very common. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they are. I mean, they are because there may be, I want to say there's like a million on the order of a million of these joint replacements per year. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like that ends up being a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. So the the article, you know, that Austin's going to run us through, it talks about of different surgical methods for managing prosthetic joint infections. And this has always been interesting to me because 
as a hospitalist, it's like kind of totally out of my hands. Like the, the surgeon decides what they're going to do. And even if I thought I knew what the best answer was, like it wouldn't matter because they're going to do what they think is best in the operating room. But the kind of the, the main ones they talk about in this article are uh, debridement with retention, one stage exchange and two stage exchange. Um, and so I was wondering if you could walk us through what those surgeries entail and, and why a surgeon might choose one over the other. Yeah. Um, so yes, those are the three main types of surgeries. So the sort of debridement, antibiotics and implant retention, which is sometimes called the DARE strategy, D-A-I-R. Um, or here at the U of U, we often call it IND with poly exchange, meaning they had an incision and drainage and the polyethylene liners. So basically the modular components, the components that can be easily swapped out, those are swapped out, but the metal stems that are in the attached to the bone, those stay in place. So that's the sort of debridement and retention piece. Um, and that is typically done um, if it's a very early post-op infection. Because um, the basic idea is with prosthetic infections, taking a step back, is that the longer a piece of metal or plastic in your body is infected, the more worried we are that the bacteria has formed a biofilm that is going to be difficult to eradicate without physically removing that foreign material from your body. So early on, like immediately after surgery, or if you, your prosthesis is doing totally fine. And then all of a sudden within 24 hours, you develop a high fever and the joint blows up in those sort of acute infection settings. The thought is that the biofilm has not had that much time to develop. And so you may be successful by just washing it out, swapping out the modular components that be, can be exchanged easily, um, and then treating with a prolonged course of antibiotics and exactly how prolonged is what the paper is <laughs> touching on today. Um, so that's the sort of um, debridement but implant retention strategy is basically it's a much less invasive surgery, right? Because they're not like hammering, they're not like chiseling things out of your bone to remove the implant. Um, and it's only one surgery as opposed to the two-stage exchange, which involves two surgeries. Um, and it is generally, so it's, it's a much less morbid surgery, but the concern is that it may not be successful if the infection is a chronic infection and so that there's been a huge amount of biofilm development around the implant. Um, so it's generally reserved for early infections or if it's a late infection, like you've had your knee in for five years and then it gets infected, something that presents super acutely. Um, or somebody where they just don't think they can tolerate any more aggressive surgery than that. Yeah, that, that reminds me of a patient I just had like last week where she was just so sick, but she had, you know, bilateral septic knees with, with hardware and it was MRSA. And I thought, I was like, oh man, I don't know if this lady could even survive like getting all of her hardware out. And they just did INDs to try to get source control. So she would, you know, stop being bacteremic and, and, you know, remarkably she did okay with that. And so I think for her, it ended up being the right approach, but I wasn't sure what the surgeon was going to do when he got in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that is done. So that's, that procedure is done in those cases. The other, the sort of quote unquote gold standard in the U S at least is the two stage exchange where basically they take out the prosthesis, put in an antibiotic spacer, which 
exactly what a spacer is, is very surgeon dependent, but it more or less means an art of something to fill the space of the joint that used to have a prosthesis in it that typically is made at least partially of antibiotic loaded cement. And then they have that spacer sitting in their joint for X number of weeks to months while they get systemic antibiotics. And then at some point down the road, they, when the infection is completely cured or thought to be completely cured, then they get a new joint put in. And so that two-stage exchange has been considered like to have the best treatment outcomes in terms of highest likelihood of not having a persistent infection. Um, and it is what is most commonly done, especially if somebody like they attempt a debridement and implant retention and then it doesn't work and the infection comes back pretty quickly, they will very often then go on to a two-stage exchange and other patients will do it upfront um, because either they are worried about a chronic infection, you know, it's been sort of smoldering pain for months to years, and then the PJI gets diagnosed, then that would not be a good candidate for the debridement and implant retention strategy because the thought is that the biofilm is too well established. A lot of this is theoretical based on like lab and animal models and like sort of, but that's the paradigm that people use. Um, and then a single stage exchange is exactly what it sounds like. You um, take out the old joint, wash it out, and then put in a new joint. Um, and that um, is more commonly done, I believe, in Europe than it is here, though there has recently actually been a random multi-site randomized clinical trial of one-stage versus two-stage exchanges. Um, and so I'm eagerly awaiting the results of that clinical trial, because again, right, a single-stage exchange, that's one surgery. <laughs> and so, and it avoids the spacer, which you know, some spacers are semi-functional, but some are not. So sometimes these patients have to be basically non-weight-bearing for months, um, and that can cause its own problems. Yeah, I always feel really bad for the the patients who end up with these two-stage, because I usually end up with them at the first part of that, where they've taken the hardware out, and now they have that spacer, and maybe it's in their hip, but they're like basically going to be laying in bed for weeks, because it's hard for them to to put weight on it. And and so, yeah, trying to explain that to the patient, like, this is what we're doing. And they just look at you like, this is terrible. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> but it yeah, it's no joke. I mean, our um, surgeons um, will often basically they explain it to patients. We basically say this is like you had a cancer, like the in terms of its impact of your, on your life and the morbidity and the mortality, to be honest, associated with this. It's pretty similar to getting diagnosed with a cancer. You have to, you know, be on often on long-term toxic <laughs> therapy, you know, medical therapies, you have multiple procedures um, and the five-year mortality is about 25%. So, you know. No, that's a good analogy. Um, yeah, really highlights how serious it, it is. Uh, so, so right now we do have guidelines, right? From the IDSA for how to treat these. And, and I, I, I was looking at those last night and it looked like they were from 2012. Does that sound right? So haven't that been correct. haven't been updated for a little while, um, but um, I, could you kind of walk us through? I guess like how long are you usually treating people with IV antibiotics? Because I feel like when I get these prosthetic joint infections and I'm I'm basically you know shipping them off to a skilled nursing facility, usually I'm only aware of the first stage of the antibiotics, and so maybe I'll send them for like six weeks or something of IV antibiotics. But then what happens after that? Like what's the course usually look like? 
Yeah, um, the, it depends. So the surgery dictates the treatment course. So if we focus on say, taking a two-stage exchange, um, our practice, which is based on IDSA guidelines and also what most people do is patients get six weeks of antibiotics after the spacer goes in. So after the stage one procedure, um, patients are treated with antibiotics for six weeks. Um, whether those are IV or oral is changing a lot since the Oviva trial got published, um, demonstrating that oral antibiotics are equivalent to IV antibiotics for patients with orthopedic infections. Um, and so um, these days it is not uncommon for a patient to get IV antibiotics maybe for a week or two and then get switched to oral antibiotics to complete the six-week course, provided that based on the bug that they grew and their allergies and their other meds that they're on and all those other things, that there's an oral antibiotic that has really good um, bioavailability. So we think that we can get good um, blood levels of an oral antibiotic. Um, so the timing of the IV to PO switch varies a bit. Um, and whether or not it happens at all. But typically with two-stage exchange, patients get six weeks of antibiotics after the first surgery. And then if they, if they get the, the IND with polyexchange and retention, that's where they end up on a longer course usually, right? Often, in particular if it's staff. So um, a lot of our data is sort of wildly extrapolated from a randomized controlled trial in the 90s that um, compared uh, quinolone, ciprofloxacin plus rifampin to ciprofloxacin alone for patients with staphylococcal infections of orthopedic hardware, so prosthetic hips, prosthetic knees, or trauma hardware who got a washout, but the hardware stayed in. And so they were randomized to either, I think they all got two weeks of IV and then were randomized to ciprofloxacin alone or ciprofloxacin plus rifampin for, and in that trial, what they studied was three months for hips and trauma patients and six months for knees. Um, and all the failures were in the ciprofloxacin alone group. And so they said, okay, well then you should use quinolone ciprofloxacin plus rifampin. That trial had like 30 patients in it. So <laughs> I mean, it was, it was stopped early because all the failures were in one of the arms and they were like, yeah. you shouldn't continue this. You've answered the question, but like that 30 patient trial from like 1995 or whatever is what a lot of our recommendations wow. are based on. You should just do um, one with 60 and then we could set the new standard. Man, that is exactly. such a small trial. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, subsequent studies have generally shown that a quinolone plus rifampin seems to be a really effective regimen for staphylococcal orthopedic infections for whatever reason. But in any event, because of that trial and because and other observational studies, the guidelines are if somebody has a debridement and implant retention, if it's staphylococcal, then the recommendation is that hips get a minimum of three months and knees six months of a re antibiotic regimen that includes rifampin and ideally a quinolone plus rifampin if you can. For all other bacteria, they're basically like do six weeks and then, you know, see what you want to do. Hmm. <laughs> there aren't as strong recommendations about what to do for non-staphylococcal ones. And so, and the decision about when you finish whatever that course is, six weeks, 
three months, six months, do you keep the patient on chronic oral quote unquote suppressive antibiotics? Um, and that is very practitioner dependent. Um, the reason it is done is because we know that these patients have a fairly high risk of relapse. Um, you know, even in this study, the patients, you know, I think they ended up with a reinfection rate of on the order of 20, 25%, which is pretty typical. Um, and anytime you get another infection, that means you have to go to the OR again for another surgery. And so, and we don't have a proof of cure. So some patients, so I basically have to have a conversation with the patient and be like, okay, you seem to be doing great. We can stop the antibiotics and see how you do, or you can be on an antibiotic indefinitely. Um, I usually take into account how frail the person is. So basically what would another surgery mean to them? Um, and, uh, what the surgeons tell me about what their surgical options would be if they had to go in again and redo the joint again. So, so this is a dumb question, but with rifampin, does that, is that only for methicillin sensitive staph or is it also for MRSA? It's for MRSA and for staph epi. It's for any kind of staph. Oh, staph epi too. So, so like coag negative staph, you would still use rifampin. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. for the full three or six months. Mm -hmm. And then after that, when you switch them to suppressive, if you do, then you drop the rifampin. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Most people do not stay on rifampin indefinitely. Um, so yes, usually if we're switching somebody to sort of chronic quote unquote suppressive therapy, um, though, again, are we suppressing anything? You never know. Um, it's usually doxycycline. Bactrim, acephalosporin, occasionally Clinda. Mm. All right. Well, I feel like that's a pretty good, you know, background and context. Um, got to ask all my burning questions. So I think we can have Austin walk us through this paper that was published in the New England Journal this, this last month. Yeah, great. So uh, this trial was antibiotic therapy for six or 12 weeks for prosthetic joint infection or the duration of antibiotic treatment for prosthetic joint infections trial, DATIPO, I guess, D-A-T-I-P-O. Um, it was published by Dr. Bernard and colleagues in France um, just at the end of last month in New England Journal of Medicine. This was an investigator-initiated multi-center open-label parallel group randomized controlled non-inferiority trial Eligible patients were greater than 18 and had to have a prosthetic knee or hip infection that was treated with appropriate surgical procedure and appropriate surgical procedure. So that, as we've discussed previously, was a one-stage or two-stage implant um, exchange or debridement with implant retention. And again, we've talked about those. So now we sort of know what those are. And as an aside, I've always wondered what they do with like how they do the cement and what goes in there and what that looks like. And if they're like molding something at the bedside, but, um, I'll just let my imagination continue to go wild. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you, yes, many of them are hand molded. Not all of them are now. Now some companies do make like cement prosthesis molds, but they are the cement with the antibiotics is mixed by the surgical team in the OR and molded and like created in the OR for that patient. It's like art class. Special, <laughs> a special uh, spacer for each patient. Cool. Um, anyway, prosthetic joint infections in this 
trial were defined um, by patients having at least one clinical symptom and a confirmed microbiological diagnosis, which required two cultures um, of the same bug, sort of depending on the bug, sometimes, sometimes three, but um, clinical signs and symptoms and a microdiagnosis. Patients were excluded. Uh, this was a little weird to me. They said they were ex they excluded patients who had undergone prosthesis replacement secondary to sepsis in that joint previously, but then also had recurrent PJI folks. So I wasn't quite sure how that jived. Um, Laura, do you have any insight into that, what they meant by that? I don't. I noticed the same thing you did. And I was like, what do they mean by that? All I could come up with was that they included people who'd had a previous prosthetic joint infection and been treated and then been fine for a while, but did not include the people who say got um, initially treated with a debridement and implant retention. And then like two weeks later, because of ongoing sepsis, then had um, a spacer put in. So I took it as two surgeries for that same PJI episode that was an exclusion. Whereas if they had happened to have a previous prosthetic joint infection three years ago, that was not an exclusion. But I don't, I don't know if that's correct, but that was how I interpreted it. Got it. I think that makes sense. Um, cool. Uh, so they excluded folks that had that. Um, they also excluded folks who had a life expectancy of less than two years if they had gotten antibiotics for greater than 21 days prior to enrollment and if the PJI was secondary to a weird bug like mycobacterium, fungi, or brucella. Patients were stratified according to initial surgical procedure, affected joint, and um, the episode of infection. So if that was, you know, the the first PJI they had had had, or if it was a repeat uh, PJI, I guess. So um, treatment was based on, on guidelines. There was no suppressive or maintenance antibiotics used after patients were randomized to six or 12 weeks. And the primary outcome was persistent infection within two years after the end of antibiotic therapy. They talk about how there's three categories of failure that met the primary outcome. And those were persistent infection with the same bug, new infection with a new bug, or probable failure, which was defined as, as an absence, like they didn't have a microdiagnosis or microdocumentation, but the, there were presence of macroscopic signs of infection. Um, I thought those were all pretty reasonable. It seems like, you know, we mostly see persistent infection with the same bug, and, and that would be the one we'd be most interested in, but um, they did include new bugs and suspected failure. Um, Laura, do you have any comment on that? Does that seem like a good primary outcome? Yeah, it does. I mean, I will say that actually a lot of patients, when they get a quote unquote recurrent PJI, it is often actually with a different bug, especially if they've gone through a two-stage exchange. So like patients who go through a two-stage exchange semi-successfully. So like their first infection was treated, they got a spacer, they were off antibiotics for a time, seemed to do fine, and then got a new joint. Um, when those patients fail, um, they typically have a new infection not a recurrence of the previous infection. Um, whereas I would say that probably with the debridement and implant retention strategy, we see more recurrent, like persistence of the same bug because we just were never able to get rid of it. Um, but honestly, from a patient's perspective, I don't know that the patient cares whether it's the same bug or a different bug. Either way, it's bad. So I do think it's um, important to like look at both outcomes what I couldn't totally tell, their main outcome seemed to be looking at the persistent infection and how that was um, the differences in persistent infection. But then they also reported like, and this is how many had new infections and this is how many had probable infections. 
Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I think some people just like have PJIs over and over and over again. Huh? That's, <laughs> that's what we see. Anyway, um, so that was the primary outcome. Uh, secondary outcomes, they, they talk about a little bit, um, were new infection, which wasn't totally clear what that meant, but probable treatment failure, hospital length of stay, uh, functional outcome, and safety outcomes. But I think the primary outcome is, is kind of the most interesting here. So um, non-inferiority margin here was defined as uh, less than 10 percentage points difference um, within the um, confidence interval. So um, keep that in mind. Uh, 410 patients were enrolled from 2011 to 215 across 28 trial sites in France. 205 were assigned to the six weeks of antibiotics arm and 205 were assigned to the 12 weeks of antibiotics uh, arm. The patients appeared pretty well matched to me. The median age was um, about 69 years old in both groups. Um, 65 to 70% were male in both groups. I think it was like 65 and and 68 or something like that. Um, Over 40% were obese. Um, Hips made up 63 and 64% of patients respectively. And there was notably a history of prosthetic joint infection in 15% of the six-week arm and uh, 14% of the 12-week arm. But um, I thought the, you know, table one was showed a pretty representative picture of folks who get PJIs. Um, Did you guys have any thoughts about that or feel like they really messed anything up there? No, I think uh, it it was interesting to me. There was like slightly more bacteremia in the six week group uh, and bloodstream infection is what they, how they called it. And so I don't know if that would, you know, predispose those people to treatment failure more, or if that's just like a, you know, if anything, you, you, at least you can confirm what bacteria you have, but yeah, overall it looked pretty matched. Yeah. Okay. Agreed. Um, and then, you know, I thought it was important to note that the surgical techniques were also pretty well matched and they, and they were stratified according to surgical techniques used. So uh, debridement with implant retention was used in 82 versus 85 patients in the six and 12 week groups. Um, one stage exchange in 77 versus 73 and two ch- two stage implant um, in 44 versus 43. And so obviously you would want those really well matched between the groups because um, that's a huge confounder and even maybe small numbers and in, in small differences in those numbers um, could impact the results of the trial. But I think they did as well as could be expected in stratifying and matching surgical techniques across groups. So um, there were some differences, some notable differences in bugs between the groups. Um, Staph was identified in 38% of the six-week group versus 30% in the 12-week group, and coag negative staph was 29.5 versus 35.2. Laura, do you think that's a big deal? I mean, bug surgery and bug, like you've said, are the most important things. They, you know, I think tried to match surgeries, and then bug is sort of out of their control, although fairly close. but do you think, does that sort of negate these results at all or, you know, make us take it with a pretty big grain of salt? I don't think it negates them because they're still pretty close, but it is true that Staph aureus and in particular MRSA, um, which I can't remember if they actually reported on what fraction of their Staph aureus were MRSA versus MSSA, because having MRSA in particular has often been associated with worse outcomes and sort of more difficulty in eradicating the infection. Um, So I would say 
maybe a little, but because the staph aureus combined with the coagulase negative staph were pretty similar, like the sum total of staphylococci was pretty similar between the groups. I think I think it's still, you know, um, uh, useful outcomes to study. Okay, great. Um, and then before, I'm, I feel like I'm sort of building up the results here. Maybe I should have just said them by now. But anyway, <laughs> before we get to the results, one last thing to note was uh, just that the antibiotics used are, are very interesting to, to me anyway here in America. So <laughs> the median duration of IV antibiotics was nine days for both groups. And then rifampin was used in 75% of the patients in the six-week group and 75% in the 12-week group. Um, fluoroquinolones were used in 72 percent and 65 percent um, between the groups. And um, like we kind of alluded to previously, this doesn't uh, feel sim all that similar to what we do, especially, you know, in these retention uh, folks. And so um, any comment on that, Laura? I mean, is, is this strikingly different um, than what we do to you? Um, I think that it, in general, they probably use um, a little bit more um, uh, quinolone plus rifampin, like it is considered like the default that if you have a staph infection, you're going to get a quinolone plus rifampin, which is what's in the IDSA guidelines. But I honestly think that in the U.S., because of the black box warn warnings around fluoroquinolones, that people are a lot more nervous about putting somebody on a long-term uh, quinolone. Um, so I do think that that affects our prescribing practices in the U.S. Also, I mean, the other thing I notice um, in the in the supplemental data gives their um, antibiotic option, like what they recommended, um, and they include rifampin as an option for kind of all their gram-positive bacteria, whereas we typically do it mainly just for staph. There is some, people have looked at it for streptococci and for P. acnes or C. acnes, um, but the data are kind of not as strong there as they are for staph. Um, the other thing I would note is they also seem to use um, aminoglycosides more than we do in their empiric therapy as like Gentamicin is like an adjunct um, to their other treatments. So I would say that the, the treatments they use are probably a little bit different from what we use here in the US most commonly, but not probably not hugely different other than that they are, they seem to be using more um, quinolone plus rifampin. I personally think that's probably a good thing for their patients, but um, that's my opinion. Yeah, I think I cool. was most struck by the you know, the very short duration of IV antibiotics, just because I'm so used to sending people out with six weeks or whatever. And, and like, when I have someone with MSSA, I'm not even thinking Cipro, right? I'm thinking ANSEF because it's narrow and it has less toxicity and that's just what we use. And so when I was like, wow, six, 70% got fluoroquinolone, um, just like the idea of sending someone out on a quinolone for three months or six months. I'm like, you, you just be so worried about their tendons, but maybe we're like over, over, maybe that's overblown. I don't know. <laughs> well, and I mean, it is like the idea is the guidelines are if somebody has a staphylococcal PJI, like they should be on a quinolone plus rifampin for three to six months. Now, whether they need that long of a course is a whole other like debate. Um, but I do think that there is 
pretty decent data that quinolone plus rifampin, or I don't know if you guys want to do other articles, but there was an article that came out recently looking at rifampin um, adjunctively, and clindamycin also seemed to be a good pair for mm. If you want to talk about other antibiotics that we almost never prescribe because people are afraid of their side effects, <laughs> clindamycin is another one. Totally. <laughs> but uh, orthopedic infections are maybe a place where it's warranted. And obviously, pick lines are not without their own risks. Yeah. Um, vancomycin yeah. is not without its own toxicity risks. Yeah. So. Yeah, they had a lot of clindamycin in this one. Mm-hmm. And I like never use that drug. Yeah, I probably need to change my tune a little bit with like the never fluoroquinolones that I tell house staff. So anyway, <laughs> um, all right, well, let's, let's actually say what the result here was. So uh, persistent infection occurred in 35 out of 193 or 18.1% of the six week group and 18 out of 191 or 9.4% in the 12 week group. So the absolute difference was 8.7% um, with a confidence interval of 1.8 to 15.6, which did not meet pre-specified non-inferiority criteria. So that result suggests that, um, you know, six weeks is not non-inferior to 12 weeks. Um, I don't know how else to say that. The nice double <laughs> um, negative. Yeah, yeah. Um, the sensitivity and post hoc analyses that they performed um, were not uh, significantly different than that. So they did several different things. Um, you know, the they actually showed that the 12, re- 12 week group did better across all types of surgical intervention and actually actually statistically significantly better um, only in the debridement and retention group. But again, those were sort of post hoc and subgroup analyses that um, we're not going to put a lot of stock in. Um, additionally, there was no difference in serious adverse events between the two groups. There, there were increased non-serious adverse events in the 12 week group, mostly related to um, GI side effects and mycosis. Um, and it's notable that 10 patients died in each group within the two year follow-up period, but all deaths were judged not to be related to PJI, which is kind of interesting with such a high five-year mortality rate. But um, anyway, the, the six week was not non-inferior to the 12 week uh, regimen in this trial. So um, what do you guys think about that? Or um, are we going to have to be doing 12 weeks for all these folks now, Laura? Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> a big question, right? Because the only, so for me, like how this might affect my practice, the question is, so for the patient's treated with debridement and implant retention where it's not staff, because where it was staff, I was already giving them at least 12 weeks. So what about in cases where it's not staff, where um, the duration is less well-guided? Should they all be getting 12 weeks, say, or because the current guidelines are like treat for six weeks and then maybe continue, maybe not, I don't know. And so, uh, Maybe in those patients, I will treat some of them for 12 weeks and then stop, uh, depending on sort of what bug it was, how they were doing. I will say the di- this, a separate conversation is actual diagnosis of PJI, because sometimes it is not clear cut. Like sometimes like the knee is hot and kind of swollen, but, you know, and they sort of have mildly elevated white cells, but then nothing grows and they get the a washout and poly exchange, but the cultures are negative. And it's like, well, does that person need 12 weeks of antibiotics when I'm not even totally sure if they had an infection, but people were worried enough that I had a surgery. So those, pa- those patients, I often do stop at six weeks and like, you're, I just stop. 
Um, but I may use this as a for non-staphylococcal PJIs um, where the to consider giving 12 weeks versus six for patients treated with debridement and implant retention. Um, I think it is, this is not enough for me to want to give everybody treated with a two-stage exchange 12 weeks of antibiotics before their next, um, before their new joint goes in. Um, I know that we shouldn't pay attention to the um, subgroup analyses, but it really did seem like it made the big, that the biggest difference was in the debridement and implant retention group, which is exactly the group where you would be worried that they might need longer or would mm -hmm. be sort of more likely to fail um, with a shorter course. So I am not totally convinced that this paper means that we need to extend everybody's antibiotics for 12 weeks for um, a two-stage exchange. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, uh, you know, it, it made me wonder like, why did they design the trial this way? Why didn't they just pick one surgical intervention? And, and the one you care about the most is this retention, you know, the debris mm -hmm. with retention because you still have a potential biofilm there that, you know, that seems like the most likely to have infection. And so I don't know if they just needed it for the numbers. They had to include all the PGIs they could get, but they do say in their, you know, discussion, like, and now we think someone else should do a study with, you know, limited to just one intervention. So we can see if that's what it is. So, so I, yeah, I agree. I think in someone who just gets the IND, I, I would advocate for a longer course. Um, over yeah, the six I think weeks. that's, yeah, exactly. That's what it seems like, especially in IND for a culture proven, like we're totally convinced um, PJI. But I think it is really hard to know what to do with this for our um, two stage patients. I mean, I may, I mean, potentially I'm sort of wildly speculating, but sometimes patients get sort of a half and half where like a lot of the implant comes out, but not all of it can. Like the femoral component gets taken out, but the tibial component is sort of really stuck in the bone. And so they just leave it there rather than breaking the patient's leg more to get it out. So maybe in those cases where it's sort of a spacer, but there's some old hardware there, like, again, this is a sort of wild extrapolation that people do from clinical trials, but then I could be like, well, maybe those people should get 12 weeks before they get their new knee or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, Interesting. But yeah, I don't know that I would immediately change to um, giving everybody 12 weeks after their spacer goes in. Because the other thing is, if you make them finish 12 weeks of antibiotics, that delays their second surgery if they need one even further. Yeah, three months um, of laying in bed. And that is, yeah. And so if you're a not, have a non, a spacer, the type of spacer that makes you be non weight bearing, some of them are, some of them are not. Um, like that is a long time to go without a functional joint. Yeah. I will say a lot of, not a lot of, but some surgeons now are moving towards what I call destination spacers <laughs> where mm -hmm. they basically get a spacer put in, but there's no immediate plan to replace it with a quote unquote true prosthetic joint. Um, so these are spacers that are articulating spacers, not static spacers. So like mm. the joint bends, um, and they are sort of more similar to, uh, an actual prosthetic joint than the 
the original space cement spacers were just cement blocks like stuck into the joint, but now <laughs> they are much more functional. Hmm. And so for an elderly patient who's not trying to ski or run a marathon, um, they are sometimes functional enough and they don't necessarily have to come out until they mechanically fail, which can be quite a while. And so the other option would be for those patients where we know that we're not, where they more or less had a single stage exchange, maybe giving them 12 weeks of antibiotics. Hmm. Anecdotally, it seems like <laughs> the typical patient that we have in the hospital is not trying to ski ever with, with a prosthetic joint infection. You know, it's, it, it, again, anecdotally seems like people who are chronically ill, who yeah are not going to tolerate multiple surgeries. And we've talked about that already, but yeah. Um, chronically ill, significant comorbidities, and no one is excited about really doing anything, you know, <laughs> surgically. And so, yeah, they kind of get stuck with, yeah, I, I have seen a few of these destination spacers. And it's also, um, I'm glad, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm glad other people are making these decisions about surgery and antibiotic durations, because they're challenging questions. And uh, it's limited data, glad that this paper has come out and provided some clarity, but still really difficult decisions, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah. There's a lot of shared decision-making that goes into these decisions, with, which another, is another reason why I enjoy and find it valuable to have my clinic at the orthopedic center, because then the patient, the surgeon, and I can have this conversation all at the same time. Do you do that together? I mean, I've always, it is sort of a black box, this whole thing for us, because, you know, we get them the surgery, get them on some antibiotics, and then we never see them again. So do you guys like all sit down ideally and kind of talk about this? Or what does that look like for it you? It depends a little bit on how complicated the patient is and how they're doing. Um, and, but for, so for some, it's just, they're sort of protocolized and we do the thing, you know, I sort of make the decisions about the antibiotics and then uh, along with the patient. Um, and then we touch base with the surgical team to see if they have any concerns about our plan. Um, but for the more complicated patients, yes, it's a definitely a group discussion. Um, some, sometimes the surgeon and I talk separately and then go see the patient. Sometimes all of us are in the conversation together. It depends a little bit on the patient. Um, but yeah, I mean, my conversation with the patient is like, how do you feel on the antibiotics? How bad are your side effects? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, which plays a lot into my decision to be perfectly honest is how sure. um, well they're tolerating them. Yeah. I was surprised cool. in this trial that like how low the rates of C. diff and like tendon problems really were with those regimens. Um, after, you know, long courses like that, but yeah, I mean, it comes down to how well they can tolerate it and like, man, committing someone to like lifelong backdrum would just be, you know, a horrible thing to have to do. Yeah. I mean, I certainly for younger patients, I will usually try to convince them to come off antibiotics at some point. Um, because mm -hmm. I know they're nervous and I know they don't want another surgery. No one wants another surgery, but I also, um, if you're going to need another surgery, it's better to have it done when you're younger rather than when you're older. Mm. Good point. Um, All right. Well, yeah. Do you guys have anything else? Austin? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I thought the, like reading this paper was fairly straightforward and, uh, you know, fairly 
really simple to understand in my opinion. So I always like that. <laughs> but otherwise, no, I thought it was, it was well done. Um, like I said, we're not the one making these decisions. Um, so thanks Laura, but, uh, good, you know, good, interesting study and, um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think it was, I mean, I'm grateful for any well-done study regarding orthopedic infections because there aren't that many. So I am very grateful to the people who put this trial together for doing it um, and getting it published so that we have the data to look at. Um, I think it is a little, the fact that they did three different types of surgeries all together does make the um, results a little bit more challenging to apply to any particular patient. But I think looking at it a little more holistically, it does suggest that we are not wrong to think that orthopedic infections require a prolonged course of antibiotics and that there is something to be gained from an extended course of antibiotics in many of these patients, mm -hmm. which is different from most other studies, infections, studies of infections that are coming out these days. Most of them do show that shorter is better or at least, you know, shorter is at least as good and mm -hmm. reduces toxicity. Mm -hmm. And so it's useful to have the reminder that there does, for whatever reason, seem to be something different about these infections that it often benefits um, from a longer course of treatment. Longer is better. I'm just going to go to Emily with that always. And I mean, you could say this is, it's just that it was not non-inferior. Yeah. So, you know, and again, I'm not advocating for 12 weeks for our patients with facers, but I do think that it makes me feel a little bit less guilty for those patients where I'm like, I really think you need 12 weeks for your single stage exchange or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Laura. And next time we see a, a good orthopedic infection article, we'll have you back on if you'll, if you'll come. <laughs> I'll happily come back. As I said, I will happily talk about orthopedic infections all day, every day. So <laughs> I'm happy to come back anytime. Cool. cool. All right. Well, all right. we'll see you. Thanks. Bye. Cool. Well, that, that was really, uh, that was really good. Really helpful to hear from, yeah, from Dr. Certain on that. Yeah. She's awesome. So, uh, I just, yeah, I just had a few other articles I wanted to highlight. We don't need to talk in any great detail on, but I just thought it was interesting. So, uh, back on May 18th, uh, the uh, USPSTF, US Preventative Services Task Force, uh, put out a new guideline in JAMA for colorectal cancer screening. And this was kind of a big deal because they now recommend screening for colorectal cancer in all adults ages 45 to 75. So they lowered the age from 50 to 45. So that colonoscopy is coming quick, man. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that's good though. Cause like at least anecdotally, you, you hear a lot more about younger people getting diagnosed with colon cancer. So I think getting, getting them started a little earlier, uh, is, is, is it's our diets, right? Like our, you know, the McDonald's is not good for the colon, I guess. <laughs> I'm sure that plays a role. Don't know. Don't know. Uh, and then uh, there was an interesting article published May 14th in the Journal of General Internal Medicine called uh, Does Hospital Admission Observation for Chest Pain Improve Patient Outcomes After Emergency Department Evaluation for Suspected Acute Coronary Syndrome? So they're looking at patients who've come to the ER, they've already ruled out ACS, you know, a couple troponins or whatever. And then does, does it benefit the patient to bring them in at that point and, and observe them? So this was a retrospective study. 
um, in the Kaiser Permanente system. And they included all adults who came to the ER with chest pain who were not diagnosed with an MI. And this was 77,652 different encounters. And out of those, 14% were admitted. So they compared the admitted to the patients who were discharged. Of the patients admitted, 1.5% of them did end up with an acute MI or death within 30 days versus 0.2% of the patients who were discharged. But when they did the instrumental variable analysis um, with adjusted differences in 30-day patient outcomes, there was no difference between the two groups. So, you know, there is something to be said for some patients, you know, I mean, this is retrospective, right? There could be like a million confounders and the, the patient that just doesn't look good that you're going to admit, you know, is probably more likely to end up with an MI at 30 days or whatever. But I think what this is showing is that for the majority, vast majority of patients, if they're ruled out in the ER, like they probably don't need to come in. And I'm glad we don't admit ACS rule outs on our hospital service, but I know that, you know, a lot of places people do. So it seems like admitting the patient kills them. So maybe we just shouldn't admit anyone with chest ah, pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, correlation you, is causation, right? <laughs> you, you, you come in, you're more likely to get invasive tests, right? So, I mean, the, the, there were higher rates of angiography too, but not that much. So, so I thought that was interesting. Um, not a perfect study by any means because it's retrospective, but it does suggest that probably most people don't benefit from coming in. So do you uh, think that also says that when the ER calls you with a chest pain that they feel bad about that um, they're probably on to something and that just like looking worse and them wanting to admit them means they might do worse and that you should try to, you know, <laughs> help them. I mean, I guess I'm not sure what we're even supposed to do with the chest pain, you know, admission, like try to control their pain, make sure they're really not having an MI, um, which again, we really don't think they are, but recognize that they're going to have worse outcomes at 30 days and tell them that. <laughs> well, but the outcomes really weren't that different when they adjusted for things. So I think, yeah, I mean, you give your ER colleagues the benefit of the doubt most of the time. Like, you know, they, they're the ones spending time down there with the patient. They've seen them and they think they look bad or something doesn't, you know, smell right. But you get a lot of these patients, too, who just have like a ton of anxiety and somatic symptoms. And they're really hard to convince to go home. And so I think a lot of times they're getting admitted just because the ER doesn't know what to do with them. You know, it's like really hard to reassure them. So everyone feels better if, oh, you just come stay in the hospital for a night. We'll just watch you make sure you don't die. And then we'll discharge you the next day. Like, I think there's like a powerful placebo effect there. Like, cause then the next day they usually do feel better, <laughs> but sometimes they don't. <laughs> and you're like, what am I going to do with this person? And then you, you end kick up getting, yourself. A, getting a CT coronary or something stupid. But anyway, <laughs> You kick yourself for accepting the admission in the first place. <laughs> exactly. Or you kick the person who did accept them. No. So uh, there was also a, a study published uh, online May 19th in the Journal of Hospital Medicine that is uh, published in the print issue of, for June uh, entitled Morning Discharges and Patient Length of Stay in Inpatient General Internal Medicine. So they wanted to see if there was an association between the number of morning discharges and hospital length of stay and emergency length of stay for general internal medicine. So if we discharge people first thing in the morning, does it improve our patient throughput? Are we going to get them out of the ERs faster? Are we going to get them out of the hospital faster? And they looked at 189,781 patient admissions 
And out of that, only 19% of discharges occurred between eight and 12 in the morning, but there was no difference in the patients, in, in the encounters that had early discharges and later for overall length of stay. So I think their, their, their main point was, you know, this like this, this crush from a hospital administration to get everyone discharged first thing in the morning probably has extremely limited impacts on overall, you know, patient throughput. And there's like probably other things that we need to look at that might affect that better. Like this patient doesn't have a ride and they're from Wyoming. And how are we <laughs> like, it doesn't matter when I put the discharge order in, they're not, they're not leaving until their, their ride gets here. So. Yeah, I feel like, um, I, have to admit, I did not read this study and I don't really understand what the outcome is, like how they're looking. So they're looking at length of stay, like hours length of stay. And even when the discharge order is signed, they still leave at 4 PM. Is that the point that we're saying, or I guess whatever, I feel like there's tons (laughs) of stuff that we could talk about with this, but yeah, just like lay off us people. Like we're doing our best. (laughs) Well, and like we had people in our group, you know, Ryan and Amanda looked at this and we had this big push here at, at the U to try to like get that discharge order. And we like changed the workflow to get those discharge orders in first thing in the morning. And I think they showed like, you know, a difference of like 10 or 20 or 30 minutes or something that, that it reduced. So it's like, whatever. And then someone's like, let's have a, let's have a discharge lounge. So after patients get discharged, we can kick them out, send them to the lounge. And I don't think that, I don't know if that's had an impact at all either, but you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I don't care about these things. I just want to take care of patients. I'll let the, uh, the pencil pushers and the bean counters <laughs> figure out how to solve that problem. All right. Last one. I know you got to go soon. So, uh, so this, uh, this was interesting. This was an article published May 20th in chess called personalized variable versus fixed dose systemic corticosteroid therapy in hospitalized patients with acute exacerbations of COPD. So uh, I remember, you know, I think we were probably med students or residents when the reduced trial came out that, you know, looked at shorter courses of steroids for COPD exacerbations. And I think at that point, most people switched to doing five days of steroids for acute COPD. And the standard dose we use is 40 milligrams, but like nobody really knows what the best dose is. It's like, let's give them a, a hefty dose that isn't toxic. You know, 40 milligrams feels good. Uh, but this was a small randomized trial of four hospitals in China. I was looking at whether you could personalize the dose and whether that was better than a fixed dose of 40 milligrams. So they had this complicated dosing scale that used five weighted factors, including the exacerbation type, uh, COPD assessment test score, whether they had prednisone use in previous exacerbations, um, did they have inflammatory markers that were elevated like CRP, and then it had a blood gas analysis. So it was, it was kind of complicated, not like a super easy whip out your med calc and, and figure it out. But, but um, so their daily prednisone dose could range from zero to 2.5 times the patient's weight in kilograms. So you, you could have an 80 kilogram patient on 200 milligrams of prednisone like that. That was, that was a possibility. But anyhow, they, they looked at their primary outcome was composite of treatment failure um, that included in-hospital treatment failure and then post-discharge failure. And they randomized 248 total patients with 124 people in each group. And failure occurred in 27.6% of patients in the personalized group and 48.8% in the fixed dose group, which was statistically significant. 
Um, and the in-hospital failure was much lower in the personalized group, 10% versus 24%. Um, and then in the personalized cohort, uh, those who received 40 milligrams or less had a higher failure rate compared to those who received a higher dose. So this, this was interesting to me. I thought the failure rates were so high though. Like, I feel like most people actually do fairly well, you know, with 40 milligrams for five days, like at least that's my experience. But to be fair, I'm usually not keeping them more than five days in the hospital. Like they usually feel good and I send them home and who knows, maybe they go home and they feel terrible and they have to go see their PCP and get some more steroids. But I thought the failure rate was really high in this study. I'm not sure I yeah buy this, honestly. I mean, I don't know. 40% seems way too high. My exper anecdotal experience with COPD exacerbations is that they never feel really very well. They like get a little mm -hmm. bit better and they're like, oh yeah, I'm back to having my normal cough and unable to walk greater than 50 feet. Whereas when I came in here, I couldn't get out of my chair. <laughs> so it's like, you know, from, from bad, from worse to back to bad. Um, mm, yeah. Their baseline symptoms can be pretty bad. And so, yeah, are, are they well enough to leave the hospital, but yeah, they still have emphysema, so they don't feel great. And I actually discharged a guy today with that exact story. You know, he came in feeling bad and he's like, well, I feel better than when I came in. I'm like, well, do you want to stay a little longer? You can. He's like, no, I want to go home. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, I mean, you don't feel like you cured them necessarily. You just kind of like temporize things. And anyway, I think this is I mean, interesting. an interesting concept. Yeah. 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 I think like, you know, I was thinking with this guy, I was like, well, what if I just gave him a way bigger dose of steroids? I don't know. I think this is, you know, an interesting concept that's worth looking at with a bigger trial and needs to be replicated because this is a pretty small study. But I think it's interesting. I think we probably should think, you know, try to break out of some of our paradigms of, you know, we get used to just doing things a certain way. And it's like, hey, maybe, maybe 40 milligrams isn't enough for some people. I think that's a great point that, you know, some of these set in stone, like, you know, things that we do paradigms, as you say, probably don't have, who knows what the evidence backing is. I guess we should know, but most of the time, I suppose I probably don't. And so re-examining some of these doctrines, um, seems like a great idea. So good yeah. paper. Cool. All right. Well, Damn. uh, Hey, so, uh, we, we've been talking, we'll probably take the summer off, uh, take a little hiatus for summer break, you know, June, July are kind of chaotic months, at least for me. So we'll, we'll come back maybe in August or September. How's that sound? Yeah, I think we need a break from each other. No, I'm just kidding. We, <laughs> yes, we have other things going on, um, through the summer and, um, yes, let's take a short break. Thanks to everyone out there who listens and, uh, you know, gives us feedback. I actually, I got a text from, from one of our old APC colleagues, um, the other day that just said, you know, keep it up. So we appreciate all the feedback. Thanks yeah. out there. And yeah, it's really nice electronic land, um, for listening and supporting and, and I'll we'll still try providing. to, yeah, I'll still try to maintain the Twitter feed. Cause that's helpful for me just to keep track of what's out there, but yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone. If you're still listening, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I hope you have a, a good day and we'll see you in like three months. <laughs>